Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Hi there. I'm Nadia Michelle, and this is The Men's Room. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the show so you can listen to all of our interviews with thought leaders from across the region. Today we're talking about Saudi Arabia. Everyone seems to have an opinion about Saudi. In fact, it's probably the most controversial country in the Middle East right now. From human rights to women's rights to massive economic reforms, there's a lot going on in the kingdom. And we're fortunate enough to have as our guest today a senior fellow at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies in Riyadh, Dr. Joseph Kishishian. Dr. Kishishian, welcome to TMR. Thank you. All right. So it seems Saudi Arabia is always in the headlines these days. In early November, of course, they announced that Aramco, the national oil production company, is finally going public. It's been a long time coming. Um, the plan was proposed back in 2016, and the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had set a target valuation of $2 trillion. And the actual valuation now looks to be about $500 million less than that. Um, and they're going ahead with that, of course. So was MBS being overly ambitious, in your opinion, or Or did the value go down? And if so, why? Well, everybody is ambitious when it comes to uh, the world's most important uh, company. And whether it is $2 trillion or $1.5 trillion is really semantics at this point. Because over the course of several uh, years and decades, the company will be reevaluated several times. Perhaps it was ambitious to start with $2 trillion, and the investors will probably estimate it to be a little less. But that's a matter of time, and, and there will not be a shortage of investors into uh, Aramco. Uh, Saudi Arabia is determined to raise as much as they can, and they probably will be successful. The, the initial shares that will be put on the market will be more than sufficient to raise plenty of money to address the questions that Saudi Arabia needs to address financially. Yes. Yeah, so, well, let's be honest, $500 million is not nothing. It's quite significant, a significant difference. But the plan is to use the money to basically further the Vision 2030 goals, which include diversifying the economy away from oil, So they're investing a lot in arts, um, large real estate projects like the super futuristic city they've planned called Neom. Do you know anything about that city? Well, let's let's separate this. Let's divide this into several parts because obviously uh, Aramco is is a huge company, and only less than maybe five percent of its of its value will be put on the market. So therefore, this is just part of a larger scheme of mega investments that Saudi Arabia is involved in. Neom is one of them, but there are also several other major projects like uh, Qadiyya, for example, uh, which is an entire entertainment city that is being built outside of Riyadh. Saudi Arabia is involved in massive transformation. And and as someone who uh, is constantly observing this firsthand, I can, I can vouch to the fact that the dynamic environment in which the economy is moving with is going to be it's going to take a long time for this to to uh, to come to fruition so to speak uh, it will take a long time to bring everybody on board but it's a it's a work in progress it will take it will take years and decades to bring all of these investments together so we should not really look at aramco as a 
one-shot deal. It is not. It is part of a larger package of a lot of very sophisticated investments. The country is changing, and it's changing for the better because it needs to change for the better. It has lots of young people that need to find work. Uh, creation of job is a priority. Creation of wealth is a priority as well, so that future generations don't rely only on oil income, but be actually creative and, and dynamic to transform the economy into something much better than what, what many people uh, have dreamt about and, and brought so forth. So the next step is to see whether or not all of these projects will materialize. It will take time, but one has to be optimistic. So we were talking before uh, the interview about the book that you just published specifically about this topic. You were expressing your ideas on how it may take much longer than what's expected. So they have this target of 2030 and they have these sweeping changes. Is it feasible? I mean, they're changing a lot of uh, things. They're building, you know, I work as a managing editor as a mag at a lifestyle magazine and I get a lot of press releases about all the arts things that they're investing in. And also, for example, they ha they've allowed now concerts. And Nicki Minaj was one of the uh, performers who was invited in June, I believe, um, which is kind of ironic considering how uh, women are you know, expected to behave and dress in that country. And what's even more ironic is she's the one that decided not to perform. Um, so, so this is just an example of how um, they've gone from you know, zero to 100 in a very short period of time. What are your thoughts? thoughts on how it will progress from here? Well, the transformation, as you said, is dramatic. Uh, less than two years ago, the country was an ultra-conservative society. Within two years, norms are changing. And even though uh, uh, the dress codes are still there, but for the first time, you see actually Saudi women wearing normal dresses without the abaya. Now, Let's go back to for a second. Before 1979, uh, abaya was an optional garment. A lot of Saudi women did not even bother to wear them. Only the wealthy could afford to wear abayas, and they actually wore it on their on their sleeves, and not not the whole. It it, would, it was a fashion garment. Uh, but after 1979 and the events that occurred uh, in that year where an attempt was made to take over the Holy Mosque in Mecca, the country became much more conservative. And until very recently, uh, there were lots of social pressures, not just on women, but also on men, to behave in a certain way. It was very dogmatic. All of this has changed overnight. And for example, let me give you one simple example. Before 2017, you would see in the streets of Saudi Arabia lots of the mutawa'in, the so-called religious police. Well, you don't see them anymore. There are about 120,000 of these men uh, who used to uh, spread havoc throughout the country. Now they're, they're at home. They are still getting paid, of course, but they're not working because obviously the country no longer tolerates, the society no longer tolerates that kind of ultra-conservatism. It doesn't mean that Saudi Arabia has become a Western liberal democracy, but it is changing. And that's one very important development. The other example that I could give you is the fact that 
uh, segregation was a, a, a norm in the country. Men and women did not mingle, especially when they don't know each other. Today, you can go to a restaurant and see couples that are not uh, related uh, mingling, co-workers, for example, in the workplace, who are essentially uh, uh, having a meal and exchanging ideas. So, ikhtilat, the very famous ikhtilat, the mixing, that was, that was a no-no in Saudi society, all of a sudden has changed dramatically. Now, it is allowed. So therefore, lots of social changes are underway in the country. But having said all of this, the question that we have to ask ourselves is whether this is enough to satisfy the ambitions of young people. And young people in the country, about 30, 40, 40% of society, uh, less than 25 years old. I mean, if you look at the statistics of Saudi Arabia, you will see that about 50% of people in Saudi Arabia are less than 30 years old. And of those, about 40 to 45% are less than 25 years old. These individuals have grown up in an entirely different environment. This is the WhatsApp generation, the Facebook generation, they are very much aware of what's going on in the rest of the world. You cannot isolate them, and they're very ambitious. They want to change lots of things in the kingdom. So therefore, the challenge is to find out whether they can be satisfied, whether their ambitions can be satisfied. And the onus is on senior government officials and the bureaucracy in general to actually make sure that all of those young people's ambitions are met. That is going to take time. It, it's not going to happen overnight. And this is really everybody's wish that it will occur. It will occur as fast as possible. But people have to be patient too. But let, let's go back to the issue of women's rights. Of course, it's changing, but there are still laws, I believe, that women cannot leave their house unaccompanied. No, that's 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 not no, that's not uh, that's really propaganda. Oh, really? Uh, you don't want to you don't want to believe that kind of stuff. Women are unfortunately, are free. I can't read Arabic, so I can't look at their actual. Uh, no, no. Laws. Let me assure you. Let me assure you. Women can move around. They can. Can uh, they get a passport? Can they, they can apply a, for a passport without the signature a passport, of a guardian? They can get a passport okay. now. They can have their pictures on the passport. Uh, they can drive now. They can do lots of things that they were not allowed to do just a few years. Years ago, there are still restrictions in place. Such Let's as, not, well, well, for example, uh, uh, in in divorce situations, uh, Sharia law are still very much applied. So, preference still goes to the male in that kind of society. However, what is interesting is that for the first time, you actually have female lawyers able to actually go in a court of law. Remember that this is Sharia courts we're talking about, Islamic legal proceedings where women were not allowed, women lawyers were not even allowed to to uh, present cases and defend their uh, clients. Now this is changing and you have young female lawyers who are allowed to actually go inside a court. Again, this is a long-term process, but the ball started rolling already. Yeah, that's interesting because now you have the voice of a woman, you know, an opportunity for a woman's voice in those kinds of cases. So it's it, it may change slowly. You do. You do and, and I will not be surprised, for example, that in the next phase, you will have several of these female lawyers eventually being appointed as judges too. I mean, all of the legal system in the country is challenged today. Uh, Sharia law has certain 
specific rules that must be accepted by everyone. This is still a, an Islamic country, and it still follows uh, the, the rules in place. But again, there is an evolution in the process. All of this is good. It will take time. So let's go back to this kind of investment in arts and culture. That's kind of that's part of also their uh, diversification and trying to boost tourism in the long term. Of course, tourists enjoy arts and culture. Uh, it gives you know a reason for them to visit. Um, but arts, by definition, is about self-expression, and we all know that Saudi Arabia is not. Sp- especially tolerant of uh, everyone having uh, the right to express themselves in any which way they want. Of course, we're all familiar with the horrible assassination of uh, Khashoggi. Um, And of course, um, there's also recent news in the U.S. uh, with uh, Twitter employees who were apparently paid by you know, the Saudi government to spy on dissidents that were posting on Twitter. Uh, one of them actually was paid $300,000 and a $20,000 gold watch, just to be specific. <laughs> you know, when you hear the numbers, you ask yourself, you know, would I do that? And I'm sure a lot of people would say yes. But the point is that um, they don't mess around when it comes to criticizing the regime, despite all this opening up. Um, what what do you think about that? Well, Art is about self-expression. There is no doubt about this. But don't assume that this is not going on. Uh, In the past, there were lots of Saudi artists who expressed themselves very clearly, but they did it in private. The difference is that now they are allowed to be in the public eye as well. Now, uh, you've asked me several questions at the same time, put them together. So let's separate them so that we can at least try to analyze them in, a, in an intelligent way. Uh, young Saudi artists are in the process of making themselves, uh, making themselves heard, not just by outsiders, but by Saudis themselves. Now, as I said earlier, this is a very conservative, paternalistic society. So when you have, let's say, a young man, I'm not going to... I'm not going to even touch a young woman situation, although there are several Saudi women uh, filmmakers who are now uh, in the process of making films and so on. Mm -hmm. But let's take a young Saudi artist, a painter, let's say, or a sculptor, a male, who is trying to present his artwork. Now, this has to be accepted by society, very conservative society. For him to actually express his artistic Uh, views and beliefs, it's going to take some learning process as well on both sides. He has to learn how to express himself in a conservative society, and that conservative society audience has got to accept the creativity that this young artist is presenting. This is a uh, difficult process. Uh, Let us not forget that in the pre-Renaissance European environment, lots of artists were also burned at the stake because they were not accepted. Many paintings were burned uh, along Mm -hmm. with the artists themselves. In the the pre-Renaissance Europe, we had the same problems. The Renaissance came and changed everything. Saudi Arabia is going through a new Renaissance right now. It's not going to happen overnight, but already there is enough of a room for for people to express themselves. But let's, sorry to interrupt, let's not forget that 
you know, they've already executed a lot of people this year, which is more than in previous years, I believe. Well, actually, actually, that's not very true. The executions are going very much down. And again, the executions are the result of Sharia law. Mm-hmm. And Sharia law is very specific for thieves, for murderers, and, and lots of uh, criminals who engage in activities that are that are judged by a lawyer, by, by a judge, uh, that in fact, this is the punishment. But again, this is not as prevalent as people assume. In fact, there are more executions in Iran than in Saudi Arabia, and nobody talks about the fact that these are taking place in Iran. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International regularly publish these numbers. They it would execu- be interesting to look at those numbers, actually. Absolutely, absolutely. And if I'm not mistaken, Saudi Arabia uh, has executed about 150 people in the past year, according to Sharia law, mm-hmm. 2018, uh, whereas uh, Iran has topped the 1,000 figure. So therefore, I mean, this, this again, the comparison is silly. Uh, I'm not trying to make a comparison, but we, we have lots of anti-Saudi propaganda going on around the world. And I don't dismiss the fact that Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated in Istanbul on 2 October 2018. This is a fact. It occurred. And the Saudi government has actually acknowledged the fact that one of its own citizens was executed in its own consular office. They're not denying it. And they've arrested a whole bunch of people. And several of them are on trial. It's going to take a, lo- a while for all this evidence to come through. And it will come uh, come come up. We will see what happens. Well, what's most shocking about that event, I don't think, is just the fact that he was killed, but the fact that the reason for which he was killed, which was his criticism of the regime. He was, in fact, a very prominent, well-to-do journalist that was just doing his job and expressing his opinions, which is, you know, in the rest, in many parts of the world, part of a journalist's duty, and it's accepted by society, and it's it comes par for the course for most governments. Well, so it the, seems it the... would be something that would be um, part. It should be part of this kind of development developmental process that they're going through. It is part of the development process, but I've devoted two chapters in my recent study. Can you remind uh, us the name of the book? Saudi Arabia in 2030, which was published by the Asan Institute in Seoul, Korea, and it's available online for anyone to download. It's going to come out in Arabic very shortly by the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies in Riyadh. I've devoted two chapters to Jamal Khashoggi's case in this particular book. Jamal Khashoggi was a friend of mine. Uh, we worked together for a while. I've known them very well. Uh, and and uh, I know that he expressed his views, but there was a lot more to Jamal's story than people assume. Uh, the fact that he worked for the Washington Post and, and he wrote a total of 20 articles for the Washington Post over a course of one year, for which he got paid $10,000, $500 a piece. And Jamal was a member of the Muslim well, Brotherhood. that's usually how journalists make their living, to be well, fair. Well, I mean, I, I discuss all the details, you know, lots of lots of questions about his fiance, about his Egyptian wife, about his divorced wife. Jamal was a complicated fellow. And well, usually that's not a reason to for a country. I I'm mean, not saying that. Okay. I'm not saying that was a reason, but I'm mm-hmm. saying that Jamal sure. was much more than people assume. And even though I am a champion of Jamal as well, but one has to also understand the political environment in which he operated. He called literally for transformation of Saudi Arabia, and he worked against the government of Saudi Arabia to a certain extent, taking money from 
other countries. Again, all of these details are in the book. I'm not trying to justify his killing by, by any shred of the, of the imagination. It was a horrible murder, but there is a lot more to the story than people assume. And I invite everyone to actually go to the Asan, A-S-A-N, uh, Asan Institute webpage and download the report and read it for themselves. Well, of course, there always is more to the story. His death is a loss. Yeah. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it happened. There is nothing that can, you can do about it. It's too late now for him. But Saudi Arabia will continue to prosper. Okay. So the book that you were just talking about... That's your latest book. But you've written extensively about the kingdom. Um, and you, you're Armenian originally, correct? Do you spend most of your time um, in Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia and Lebanon now. Okay. Uh, of course, I've lived most of my life in the United States. But uh, now I commute between Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. And uh, you also teach, I believe? No, I don't teach anymore. Oh. I stopped teaching. All I do now is write uh, and, um, and uh, think. Uh, more importantly, so my family members tell me, you do three things in life. Uh, you read, you think, and you write. Why don't you do a fourth thing? And I will eventually. <laughs> what do you think that will be? A gardener, probably. When I retire, that I'll become nice. a gardener. Yeah. yeah. So as a uh, as a fellow at the KFCR, how do you call it? The King the Faisal? King, the King Faisal Center for yeah. Research and Islamic Studies. Yeah. So you always name it with the whole, with all the words. You don't shorten it to just the King Faisal uh, Institute or well, the center? King Faisal Center is center. a is a world world known institution. It is part of King Faisal Foundation. Yeah, that was established after the king was assassinated in 1975. It's a it's a philanthropic organization. It is a non profit organization, and uh, we are several researchers who are trying to do good work uh, as much as we can. Yeah, what is your mission there? Uh, my mission is to write. Uh, my mission is to give opportunities to young Saudis as much as I can to share my knowledge with them and to do research underground. Uh, and I have written, as you said, several books on Saudi Arabia, allows me to have a home in the kingdom. And I can interact with both members of the ruling family, with society at large, with intellectuals, university members, you know, attend conferences and uh, write papers, write books. That's what, that's what I do. And do you feel that you can be critical um, in that role because you're kind of, you know, inside the country and interacting with the inner circle? I can be critical. I, uh, when, when I was hired for the job, obviously, I was uh, aware of the fact that I would be working in Saudi Arabia. But in the past uh, several years, I've been there since 2011, uh, no one has ever told me, don't say this or don't write that. Uh, I am careful in terms of what I write, but it doesn't. it's not because I'm afraid. I am careful because I don't want to write something that will be proven to be totally wrong. And I want to base my writing on credible information that I gather without having either a pro or anti-Saudi perspective. My interest is to actually think critically about Saudi Arabia and see the transformations that are going on. First time I went to Saudi Arabia was in 1983, and I have seen in my lifetime many, many changes in the country. So it's my duty as a scholar to actually look critically at the country and see what's happening. And if I can present this message in my writings, that would have been an accomplishment already, and hopefully it is. So the kingdom has these incredible, ambitious plans uh, with Vision 2030. Uh, so by 2030, we're expecting to see the big plans come to fruition, including Niam and uh, Kida. Is that what you called mm -hmm. it? Kidiya. Kidiya. 
Do you think that they will be able to complete these in time? Do you think they will be as uh, incredible as the plans indicate? And do you think they'll be able to um, to staff these with Saudis who are not necessarily used to these kind of very ambitious projects? Well, those are the challenges that the leadership faces to be able to actually deliver on their promises. And there is a great deal of work to do ahead. It might not all come to fruition by 2030. It might take a little longer. But that's the objective that people have set have set for themselves. Now, let's be clear about something. Saudi Arabia is part of the G20. It is a global economy. Its GDP is almost $750 billion per year. We're not talking about Zimbabwe here. We're talking about a real country. And it is a, a... major oil producing. It is one of the world's most important. It holds one of the world's most important reserves of about 250 billion barrels of proven reserves. And oil over the years is going to become even more valuable because it will not be wasted to produce electricity and transportation. It will be used for important things uh, like uh, like uh, medical uh, facilities and, and that kind of stuff. So we will see what happens. The challenges, however, need to be addressed in toto. They cannot be addressed in isolation. As far as I can tell, there are three major challenges ahead for them. Uh, The most important is the legal system. The Saudi legal system has to be updated. It has to be adapted to the environment in which the world expects Saudi Arabia to be. The second important transform... Wait, let me stop you there. Do you mean by that that you believe that they should no longer uh, have a Sharia law? That That's impossible because this is still a Muslim country, but it doesn't mean that Sharia law is uh, not open for... Uh, reform. For updates yeah. and, and reforms, if you would like. But, but that's not up to me to decide. That's for the the Saudis to decide and the religious clerics and the leadership, they will have to address dramatic transformation. Sharia law is not written in stone. It can be be adapted, as it is in many Muslim countries around the world. The second challenge that they face is to make sure that the socioeconomic environment that people live in and grow up in is able to accommodate all of these young demands, young people's demands, so that they can address them in a very frank and open way. And the third challenge that people face is to allow uh, free enterprise, the creation of wealth. That's very important. People have got to express themselves to be able to have the abilities to create wealth. Without the creation of wealth, Saudi society as part of the global economic system will not be as successful as people assume. I am optimistic. I mean, one can one can look at at the glass half full or half empty, uh, uh, and 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 reach some kind of conclusion. One has to be optimistic that the leadership is aware of these challenges and that they have the onus to actually deliver on what they are talking about. Maybe it will not all occur in 2030. Maybe it will take longer, but the transformation has already started. The train has left the station, and there is no turning back. Okay, this last question. Considering the current events in the region, including what's happening in Lebanon, uh, in Qatar and Yemen, give us a brief overview of what you think the geopolitical situation might look like 10 years from now. 
quite different from what it is today. I think the confrontation that we see between the Arab world and Iran will end by 2030. Uh, the, the, the attempt by Iran to hijack the Arab world is going to fail. It is not going to succeed for a very simple reason. And the Iranians have not really... I'm, I'm surprised at Iranians because they're good students of history, but somehow they, have, they seem to have forgotten that the Ottoman Empire tried to rule over the Arab world, and after 500 years, they showed that they could not dominate the Arab world. It was a total failure. The Ottoman Empire collapsed, and the Arab world reemerged for what it was previous to the Ottoman Empire. So therefore, the Iranians are not going to be able to impose their will on a mass of 500 million people from the Atlantic to the uh, Arabian uh, Arabian Sea or the Indian, Indian Ocean. So therefore, we will see this transformation occur. It will be bloody. It will not be peaceful. What we are seeing in Syria, what we are seeing in Iraq, what we are seeing in Yemen, and now in Lebanon, are these countries going to be able to tolerate the kind of interferences that the Iranians are constantly doing, my view is that the Iranians are not going to be able to deliver on their on their wishes. And the thinking that Iran now controls four Arab capitals and is thinking of the fifth one down the line, that's not going to happen. By 2030, I think the Iranians will be at home, they will take care of themselves, and they will leave the Arab world at its own pace to transform itself as best as possible. And already, as we speak today, uh, we are seeing demonstrations restarting in Iran, just like it was in 2009, because the people of Iran as well are very much opposed to what the clerics are doing. So wait and see what happens in 2030. I'm optimistic that they will not be able to dominate the Arab world. Well, these are certainly fascinating times. Thank you so much for your insights, your very valuable insights. Thank you. That's all, folks. If you enjoyed your time with us, be sure to get yourself a free subscription to TMR on whatever platform you're on. We love Hakawadi.com, of course. And you can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter. Have a good one.